I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So we're continuing our ask this month to help spread the word about the podcast. So if you know someone who's concerned about climate change, tell them about the podcast. People-to-people recommendations really make a difference in terms of us being able to grow our, our listener base and ultimately spread our, our message. So this week, we're going to be tackling the topic of energy storage. And I know before we go further, it's probably not the sexiest topic in the world, but energy storage is literally the key to us achieving a carbon neutral grid. You know, as the percentage of electricity we get from wind and solar grows, our capacity to store energy needs to ramp up quickly to offset those days where the sun isn't shining and and the wind isn't blowing. But before we uh, dig into energy storage, Thomas, I've heard we've got a good reason for hope this week. Uh, yeah, Jason. Uh, according to Reuters, uh, development banks have committed $50 billion to support climate goals in the Americas over the next five years. So this, this announcement was made this week as part of the Summit of the Americas. And one, one key climate goal will be helping the Renewable Energy for Latin America and the Caribbean Initiative um, achieve a 70% uh, renewable energy target by 2030. So currently there are 15 nations in the initiative and um, more are set to join at the America's Summit. So this is good news. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I know we, we often focus here on money being put forth to help climate change as a, as a reason for hope. But, you know, the reality is nothing happens without the capital. So, yeah, I think this is a positive thing and, you know, exciting to hear that there's more countries in, in Latin America and, and the Caribbean that are, that are joining the call to go 70% renewable by 2030 if only uh if only china and and, uh, russia could be there by the same time yep and australia (laughs) (laughs) so uh our guest today to come educate us on energy storage is jason berwin jason is the vice president of energy storage at the american clean power association where he leads policy and advocacy engagement on behalf of the you know, U.S. energy storage industry. He previously served as vice president of policy and interim chief executive officer at the U.S. Energy Storage Association. Lots of titles here. He also directed uh, research and advocacy on U.S. energy innovation and tax policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center and holds a master's degree from the University of California, Berkeley's Energy and Resource Group and Goldman School of Public Policy. So excited to have Jason on the program. So Jason, welcome to uh, Climate Optimist. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. (laughs) To start you off with a basic question, when you think about efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? You know, it's funny because I've been doing this for a while, and I have to say that I think the main thing that gives me hope is the change in the expectations and the narrative of so many people in business and government to how are we going to do this rather than should we do something about this, right? It's a presupposition that we are going to act. And the how is really a lot of the question. Yes, there are political setbacks. Yes, there are battles to win. But at the end of the day, you know, when I started thinking about climate change as a teenager, 
was not <laughs> most people's priority. And it is now front page news every day, which is unfortunate because oftentimes it's front page news for bad reasons. But I think it's also just, you know, it's gone from being something that's sort of, oh, this is an environmentalist concern to, yeah, this is in everything. And we as a civilization need to address this to make sure, whether for selfish reasons or for altruistic reasons, that we are able to take care of ourselves. Yeah, well, it's it's heartening to hear that you've you've heard a change in that dialogue. I mean, we you know talk to a lot of folks, and it seems like there is sort of this this pivot that has happened for a lot of people, where now the focus is really on okay, you know, <laughs> tell me what to do so we can we can work our way out of this. Well, that's kind of a good good segue, I guess. How did you find your way into the the world of energy storage? So you know, do this very quickly. Uh, as a teenager, got into climate and clean energy concerns at the urging of a good friend. And uh, as you know, my first act was to convince my parents to buy clean energy, you know, renewable energy certificates through an energy retailer when I was a teenager. Fast forward many, many years. And after stints at the California Public Utilities Commission in private consulting, I went into sort of the federal think tank space on energy technology innovation policy. You can only spend really so much time focused on energy technology innovation before you say, there's one particular technology that I think is going to be a really big deal, and I'd better get into it as fast as I can. And that was energy storage uh, back in 2015. Excited to get into that. So, you know, I think everybody understands the concept of a, of a battery, you know, at its core, but wondering if you could just kind of describe what energy storage is from a, from a power generation perspective and, you know, why it's so important in terms of our, our efforts to decarbonize. Sure. So, you know, energy storage is a unique asset because it is bidirectional. It can supply electrons to the power system. It can remove electrons from the power system. So it is unlike generation in that sense because it goes both ways. That sounds pretty banal, but that capability is in fact very central to why energy storage is such an important part of clean energy transition in the power system because the power system was designed to make sure supply and demand match at every single second or sub-second really. And the entire design of how our electricity system works and the governance around it and the economics of that system are all built around this basic physics principle of electricity is not stored, so supply and demand have to match at all times. With this new generation of batteries, what's so important for them is they're loosening this fundamental constraint of supply and demand have to match at every single second in such a way as that you can actually manage the operations of your power system far more flexibly. And that opens up all sorts of new operational capabilities in terms of saving money because you're able to utilize your existing generator fleet, your existing wires infrastructure just far more efficiently with that flexibility. And so you don't need as much excess capacity there, say, to meet just the single peak hour on the system, right? Similarly, it provides an enormous amount of reliability and resilience, can stabilize grids more effectively than any other resource. And Fundamentally, it paves the path for adaptation to whatever supply mix the future power system will have, because again, that flexibility 
is really there to make non-dispatchable wind and solar dispatchable, to make inflexible nuclear flexible. And so that's that's kind of how we see energy storage's role in the power system. The reason that energy storage is critical to our efforts to decarbonize our society, I mean, I'll, I'll take it up to a 50,000 foot view. In energy, right, there's only three things we do with energy. We convert it from one form to another. And that's like what generation resources are doing. They're taking input and turning it to an output. You take fuel, you turn it into electricity. You take, take the movement of a turbine from wind, you turn it into electricity. And similarly, on the end use side, we take that electricity, we turn it into motion or light. That's all conversion technology. Then we have how we move energy around. That's wires, pipelines, right? That's how we move it from one place to another. The third thing we do is we store it, we keep it somewhere. And heretofore in human history, most of that has been in the form of, at least in the modern era, of as hydrocarbons. And if we do not figure out how to make the storage of energy something that does not fundamentally revolve around hydrocarbons, then all the effort we make on generation or conversion resources and on transportation resources will be fundamentally limited by the fact that our storage resources still are fundamentally tied to carbon. And that's why energy storage to me is such an important part of the journey here, because if we can get away from hydrocarbon-based fuels, whether that's through electricity storage, like in batteries and other technologies that we'll talk about, that's the direction I think that we need to go and make sure we're hitting the third leg of that stool of conversion technologies, transportation of energy, and storage of energy to actually decarbonize our power system. So I'm thinking from a from a basic kind of visual perspective, you've got, you know, the energy storage of the past was the, you know, the big tank of natural gas sitting next to the generator or the, you know, pile of coal outside the plant. And right. the storage is really enabling us to get to move away from that to something that's that's carbon neutral. That's the idea, right? Is that especially if we're going to a power system of much higher shares of wind and solar power, certainly the variability there is well complemented by something that can store electricity at times when it's less valuable to be available for times when it's more valuable. I think it's important to note that fuel is really convenient. And so the great task here is to not just be able to create batteries, for example, at scale, although that's a huge part of what we're doing right now, but it's really a fundamental substitution of this technology of the hydrocarbon chemical bond with other things. Another way I like to think about this is that humans do not know how to store energy effectively except through, uh, you know, really far back in our history, through organisms, through meat, through way in which we get energy is through organic, you know, biological meat. But all of our fuels are harvested, right? They are found, they are dug up, they are drilled. And if we are able to unlock the ability to on-demand store energy and then recall it back when we need it, that's actually a quite significant civilizational advance. I'm trying to put this in a greater context because I do think that it's more than just we need a few batteries. We're talking about fundamentally the ability for humans to control exactly when and where they get primarily electricity for use uh, without having to rely on harvesting fuels somewhere. 
Yeah. And I mean, you know, people are obviously familiar at this point with, you know, the batteries in an electric car, but thinking about the relationship those have with the the conversion assets, the generation assets you talked about, um, and how that all plays together is going to be, you know, fundamentally different than, yeah. than it has been. Absolutely. And, you know, the other piece of this is that with batteries in particular, like current day lithium ion batteries, not only are they bidirectional, but they are exceedingly flexible. Unlike pretty much anything else in our power system, you can ramp them to any level of input or output nearly instantaneously with extraordinarily high fidelity. That's a level of control that is, again, almost more akin to like computer and computational fidelity than it is a machine. So, so we're moving from the, you know, the typewriter of electricity to the, to the computer version. That's what I would say. I mean, you're starting to see this in the implementations too, when folks are using these assets, when they are in the power system, they're being used to manage microsecond to microsecond, you know, fluctuations in the power system. Well, you know, I know the technology side can be the exciting one for a lot of folks. So wondering if you could speak to kind of what are the primary kind of energy storage technologies being used today, and then kind of maybe look into your crystal ball and give us your thoughts on where you anticipate things being, you know, let's say a decade from now. Sure. So the primary, like the largest amount of energy storage installed today, as I mentioned, is actually pumped hydroelectric power, where you have usually some sort of elevation differential. There's a pool in a higher elevation, a pool in a lower elevation, and you pump water uphill and then leave it behind some sort of dam and let it run through the dam when you actually need the electricity again. It's the most common form of energy storage worldwide. Today, most folks are focused on batteries, uh, and specifically the family of lithium-ion electrochemistries. The two that you'll hear most about are lithium nickel manganese cobalt and lithium iron phosphate batteries. Those chemistries just refer to what is in the cathode, so one side of the battery. And uh, the reason why those have taken off is several fold, but key ones being the massive global expansion in their production, driven primarily by the need in vehicles, has brought their costs down quite significantly. And we can get into the nuances of why different chemistries might be favored or others, but that is really the dominant technology today and probably for the sort of medium term. So that's what you're generally hearing when you hear folks talk about energy storage. However, there are a variety of electrochemistries out there. There are folks working on other kinds of uh, electrochemistries, such as sodium-based batteries. Uh, in fact, sodium sulfur batteries were beginning to get installed on the grid in the late 2000s, well before lithium-ion ion was being installed on it, because that was actually a technology that seemed to have more promise then. And there are new sodium-based technologies being developed today. There are zinc air batteries are kind of coming back. You have now a number of different folks focused on grid scale batteries that are focused around zinc. You have iron-based batteries as well. And you know some of these are standard batteries that have solid electrode materials, but you're also seeing folks working with flow batteries where the electrodes are actually liquids. There are nickel-based batteries, you know, Toyota's nickel metal hydride batteries were extremely effective back when they were introduced, and folks have continued to innovate on nickel-based batteries. So this entire space of electrochemistry is just full of very exciting technology directions and 
we're probably going to see a number of new technologies arise over this decade. And then outside of electrochemistries, you've got thermal technologies, storing energy as a thermal mass, as heat or cool. That could be in the form of molten salts, molten metals. You have mechanical or physical types of energy storage. I consider pump hydro one of those, but there are folks working on compressed air energy storage. So you have a variety of different options out there, and each of them is sort of vying for a different segment. It's very exciting to see all of these different technologies being worked on, and uh, I, I am eager to see in 2030 who's, who's going to be deployed at scale on the grid. So I think the, the next maybe natural question for folks is where, you know, do vehicles come into this, right? Because we know we're moving increasingly towards electric transportation. Uh, what role do you see those potentially playing? And again, I know there's, there's a lot of if-thens <laughs> that go into answering that, but um, just curious at, at a high level what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's the reason why it's such a compelling question is because you have 10 times the amount of batteries rolling around on wheels that you will have installed in a stationary grid application. And if you can utilize even a fraction, it could very easily be, you know, match a lot of what's already being deployed on the grid. And then, of course, there are other exciting things. You have a resilience sort of component here, right? Like if someone has an electric vehicle and it can power their home through blackouts or through extreme weather, you may be able to avoid a generator system. Similarly, because vehicles will be distributed across the power system, you don't have single point of failure type of concerns. So there's a lot of reasons why I think folks are excited here, but I also I don't think you can discount. There are some, some challenges here too. How do you unlock things that are really not, have not been a part of the grid as grid assets. Like there are some really interesting and somewhat tricky regulatory questions there, but you know, certainly there are a lot of smart people working on them. And <laughs> you know, if you can solve those challenges and frankly, if you can make the economics work, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if sometime this decade uh, we see that business model being deployed at scale in certain places. Well, it's an exciting world ahead of us, that's for sure. So you, you mentioned the, the economic side of things, wondering, you know, what does, what does like a wind or solar plant or wind or solar farm plus energy storage look like from a cost perspective compared to say something like natural gas that we talked about? So I think where you see this playing out is in many respects in these kinds of sort of utility procurements, right? Where you have different uh, investor-owned utilities, particularly in the West, and what we've seen in recent years is a number of those utilities saying, hey, we used to, you know, when we needed system capacity, a fancy way of saying something that's going to be there to back up the system during peak demands of the day or season for that matter, it almost always was going to be a gas plant, some, some iteration of gas-fired power plant. What's happening now is that those resources are being matched head to head on an economic basis with primarily battery storage. I think a key thing to bear in mind here is that it really does de depend in large part on just what type of utilization you have. Similarly, we're seeing more utilities also pursuing hybrid, uh, in most of the cases are solar plus storage projects, as being 
some amount of substitution for what would otherwise traditionally have been a gas plant, right? Uh, because again, utilities are modeling what their system needs in order to remain reliable over the next 10 to 20 years. And they are seeing that the cost points have come down enough that a four-hour battery and solar facility may in fact provide what their system needs for reliability more cost-effectively. And I think you're only going to see that proceeding over time as long-term the costs of these resources continue to decline. Well, it's, it's certainly exciting to think about the fact that those conversations are, you know, taking place real time and that, you know, as we get ready to retire more coal assets, that the status quo of like, okay, we'll put in a natural gas plant isn't the, isn't sort of a, you know, a decision that's made up front, right? That, that now utilities are saying is a, is a battery plus, you know, a solar farm together going to meet my needs. And there's also a risk component here, right? Like, you know, basically what this asset will cost once you bought it with a gas plant. And particularly, I say this in the middle of 2022, you don't know what gas prices are going to be in the future. And then, of course, there's the decarbonization imperative. How much do we expect that these, you know, a fuel-based generator today is going to be used 10 or 20 years from now? Storage is a really helpful thing that will you can be sure you will be able to use without either of those risks. In other words, if I'm an energy provider today, even though a natural gas plant might meet my needs today, I don't want to be sitting there in 15 years and having it unutilized because you know, we've, we've moved away from, from fossil fuels. Right. You know, I think you, you teed up my next question, which I think is important with any sort of climate solution. What, from your perspective, is needed to really speed up that deployment of energy storage that we need in order to get to that, that power grid that's, you know, fossil fuel free? Sure. You know, in the short run, I think some of the challenges right now have to do with just global supply chains being kind of scrambled, both due to pandemic and geopolitical events. You know, I, I tend to say there are three basic things that you need to make sure you have access to the grid. So that means we have efficient interconnection processes and that those interconnection processes to the power system are appropriate for energy storage. That you need to make sure energy storage is enabled to compete head to head with other investment options in the power system. And then on, you need to be able to value and compensate the flexibility that energy storage provides. Sometimes that's very hard to do. And so we use things like storage targets to drive that transformation forward, right? Um, you've seen also different states use incentives to kickstart their industries to really bring down a lot of the soft costs. The last thing I'll note is that we have to build a lot of stuff. And that's going to be oftentimes a very local permitting and siting conversation. And I think in general, a decarbonizing power system means building lots and lots of new stuff, wind turbines, solar farms, battery storage facilities. And that means to the ability to get things cited and permitted in some reasonably timely fashion is really going to probably be the primary determinant as to how fast we can decarbonize our power. Yeah. And so that leads to, I guess, the question that we try to ask is, you know, what, you know, what can we do as individuals that can be helpful in getting to that, that desired future state? Gosh, I wish I could like harness the power of a mobilization for storage, need more energy storage. Um, <laughs> I think we're probably a ways away from 
But what I will say is that obviously you you have power as a voter always to make sure that you are making clear that one of the things you think is important is a clean power system and decarbonization. I actually think for a lot of folks, this is going to be a really interesting moment. It's a question of how do we all do our part on decarbonization and climate change? Because I think what makes this in some ways a tricky and challenging conversation is whether it's wind or solar or energy storage, a lot of those assets are, you know, people are trying to build them in places that traditionally have not been where you've built power plants. There's an inherent tension here because particularly for those of us who are focused on decarbonization, we also tend to like things like, you know, our local environment. And I'm not telling anyone who's listening to this that they, you know, you have to support these things no matter what, or else you're not doing your part. But I do think that it takes all of us for whom this is an important issue to really consider how we are going to be a part of the solution in clean energy transition and in our communities. Because if we can't do that ourselves as committed folks to decarbonization, a lot of the rest of the country won't want to go either. Trust me. Yeah, I think it can be easy to sort of conceptualize it as, you know, I'm out driving somewhere and I see the the wind farm on the distance or the or the solar farm. But but yeah, to get to where we need to be, there's going to be a lot more of that out there. And and if we're committed to, you know, decarbonization, then, you know, some of that might be in a place to your point that we're we're not used to seeing it. Well, thank you, Jason, for taking the time to come on and share your wealth of expertise on on energy storage. It's it's heartening to hear that, you know, we're already in this transition and things are moving and yeah, excited to see what the what the next decade brings. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure. So Thomas, what uh, what were your thoughts on the conversation with Jason? Yeah, look, I I think you did a pretty good job of covering all aspects of energy storage and I'm totally on the same page. I think it's a very important part of the equation because of the intermittent nature of many of our renewable sources. So um, it's there's going to be quite the transformation of how we deal with energy in the next decade or so. And you know, without the storage solutions, be it in the form of chemical batteries or pumped hydro or hydro storage in general, um, there, we, we can't make this transition without it. So I think it's great. And um, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head. Yeah. And I mean, I was excited. It you know may not have been news to you, but just the the variety of potential storage technologies that are out there, both battery chemistries and, you know, discussion of everything from, you know, compressed air to, to hydrogen, you know, having that variety really makes for, really ensures that we're not, you know, dependent on just one technology. And I think knowing that there's all this kind of innovation that's still in the works, it'll be exciting to see where things eventually shake out. I think um, ultimately it's going to come down to what really works for you know, a specific region of the world. It's going to be a culmination of a variety of storage solutions that are going to help us achieve what we need to to, to tra- transition off fossil fuels. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately that's a positive too, because it means that we're not handcuffed to some specific, you know, rare earth element, right? That you need for this one type of technology. And, you know, to that end, it's also exciting to hear, you know, kind of his, his thoughts on 
how we're going to be integrating all of our electric vehicles uh, into the grid and and the resilience that gives us, right? Not only for helping the grid, but, you know, enabling us as we have more of these extreme weather events, being able to, you know, keep the lights and, and the heat on. Yeah, because when, when you look at electric vehicles, I think they're going to be absolutely key to the success of the grid in the future. I mean, a lot of utilities look at electric vehicles now um, with a little bit of angst as you know these behemoths that are going to draw off a massive amount of electricity from the grid and, and put it under strain during peak times. But if you know through adequate pricing mechanisms, if you can encourage people to charge during those off-peak periods, either in the middle of the day or, or at night at home, then they can be, you know, with bi-directional charging, um, feeding that power back into the grid and really helping out this uh, levelizing solution. It's exciting to think of the sort of the independence that we'll all have as, as individual households and that, you know, we're each potentially, you know, being able to play in this, this larger interconnected system. Yeah, which is, I know that we've spoken about this before, but where a distributed solution really works very well. In fact, there was an unfortunate situation recently where the South Australian state government just rolled back a $2,000 incentive for those installing batteries in their homes. Um, Because the beauty about having the storage at the end user is that in the case of a blackout, the storage solution is not at a centralized location that nobody has access to. It's at the home so that you can ride through that blackout and at least provide your own uh, storage for that blackout period. And if you have solar panels and you've you know, got your solution cor- correctly wired, you can recharge your batteries the next day if that blackout is continued for a number of days. So it does hurt me a little bit when, when we think that we've just got to have one large solution for all storage needs. I really see the the modernization of the grid going to a more decentralized solution. So Thomas, we're obviously touting the advantages here of energy storage and kind of the, you know, the promise it brings. Uh, are you a true energy storage ambassador? Do you have batteries at your, uh, your house? Um, well, I know, Jason, it might look a, a little uh, <coughs> hypocritical, but uh, I actually don't. Um, I, I do have 12.8 kilowatts of solar panels on my house, which is a ridiculous amount for a small house. Um, but <laughs> um, but I, I've chosen thus far to not um, put batteries on because we have a bit of a unique situation in Tasmania where we have massive peaking capabilities um, of the hydroelectric systems in Tasmania. So during those morning and evening peaks, when the grid is under a lot of load, and in most jurisdictions, you'd normally have a lot of fossil fuels coming onto the grid, um, we, we can you know, meet those needs through turning on a tap, essentially. So having the battery here doesn't make sense. If I was living in Victoria or New South Wales or Queensland, where the grid is very carbon intensive during those peak periods, then yes, it, it absolutely does make sense. So, and in a way, and I won't give you a hard time because you know clearly there's there's a rational explanation as as to be expected. But um, I was just thinking it goes back to your point earlier about how storage is really going to be a variety of solutions depending on where you are. And you know the reality is um, we can often look past it, but hydro is sort of the the most classic form of of energy storage. You know, the other thing I think is worth calling out 
that you know we don't often talk enough about is the point Jason made about how we really, as people who are concerned about climate change and wanting to you know see the rapid adoption of these solutions, we all have sort of a role to play in being supportive. And so, you know, that gets down to the community level. And whether we're talking about a new solar farm being put in or wind farm or, you know, transmission lines, the reality is all of these updates are necessary for us to be able to, you know, be in a place where we have clean energy and mitigate the effects of climate change. And so I think it's important to, you know, to call that out. Yeah, I I think along those lines, the beauty about things like wind turbines is at the end of life or if we come up with some fantastic cold fusion solution, um, you undo 140 bolts, you dig the foundation down three feet below grade, cover it with some soil, and it's like the land was never touched before. You know, with the solar side of things, I, I would really like to see every house and every building covered in panels using the existing interconnect points to the their maximum capacity before we have to go and build too many solar plants on public lands and those sort of areas. But at the end of the day, most of this stuff can be recycled, reused. It's not like going and building a nuclear power station where for the next X number of thousands of years, you're sitting there scratching your head wondering, wondering what to do with the waste problem. You know, the reality is energy has a footprint. And if we expect to, you know, to turn on that light switch or hop in that car that, you know, that there is going to be some footprint out there that we have to deal with. And, you know, as you point out, not all solutions are are created equally. So the more we embrace clean energy, the, you know, the lesser that footprint. Which is why efficiency is, I think, something that's really important and worth looking at before you look at other forms of generation. I have a case this week that I was helping a friend on and they're looking at insulating and putting the heat pump a new heat pump system in their house but the the heat pump that they're specking is more than double what it needs to be because the walls in the house are uninsulated so I'm just like go after the insulation first and foremost reduce your requirement for energy because once you install something like insulation that's it for the rest of the life of the structure those savings will continue yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, you know, there's always the cheapest form of insulation, which, you know, I think our uh, our, our grandparents used to talk about, which is that uh, wool sweater that you're supposed to put on yeah. when the house got a little cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess this all leads to the question of, you know, naturally, what can what can we do? And for this week, want to really, in the spirit of what Jason talked about, call for all of us where we can to be supportive of, you know, these new uh, energy projects and grid updates that take place in our community. You know, the reality is if we're committed to addressing climate change, you know, we need to embrace, you know, those solutions. And then, you know, the second thing, which dedicated listeners are probably tired of me talking about is that uh, we want to ask for folks to send a note to your senators to push them to, to get the climate provisions of the Build Back Better Act passed. There's been some recent Updates in the news indicated that there are negotiations underway. And so it really is important that all of us take a moment to just send a quick note. We'll, uh, we'll have talking points on our website to assist. Well, I think that's a wrap for this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. 
Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Oh,